On behalf of Bethlehem College and Seminary, I'd like to welcome you to this uh, special event in the world, against the world, for the world, a conversation on Christ and culture with John Piper and Douglas Wilson. Uh, my name is Joe Rigney, and I'm a professor here at BCS, and we are grateful that you'd join us both here and on the web. And uh, so let me introduce our two guests here tonight. John is the Chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary and the lead teacher for DesiringGod.org, and Doug is the pastor of Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho, and he blogs at DougWills.com. So thank you both for joining us. Um, I'm going to open in prayer, and then we'll begin. Almighty God, we are so grateful for your kindness to us. We're grateful for this evening when we could gather here together to talk about important things. And some of them, there are so many important things that we could talk about. And so we just want to ask for your help to direct our minds and our thoughts and our answers to the ones that will be most helpful tonight. And so would you come and do that work? Would you magnify Jesus in our time together? Help us to be clear. Help us to be um, faithful to your word. Help us to be helpful to people. And so we ask that you would come now and do that great work in the name of your son. Amen. Well, uh, we live in a, in a time of great cultural and uh, societal change. I think all of us feel that at a very acute level, um, whatever issues we talk about. And, um, and Christians um, can't escape from the brokenness and sin of the world. It confronts us on every side. And we're commissioned to preach a gospel to this world. And then um, when we're confronted with some of these controversial, deeply... Um, uh, um, divisive moral, political, social issues, sometimes we wonder what exactly it is that Jesus wants us to do. And so the motivation for the event tonight is simply to try to make a little bit of progress on some of those questions. So um, when I think about the current state of affairs, um, some of the things that come to mind were, um, for in our own context, let's start there, uh, Minnesota rejected an amendment that would have established marriage is between one man and one woman at the ballot box in 2012, and then it recently um, legalized so-called so same-sex marriage. So in a short amount of time, we went from sort of one end of the spectrum to the other. Um, we have a continuing uh, 50 million babies who have been killed since Roe v. Wade in 1973. Um, we've had the Kermit Gosnell trial and the house of horrors that was associated with that. We have continuing polarization uh, of Americans along cultural lines, political lines, racial lines, sexual lines, and then that's just, a, that's just our country. That's not to mention the things that have been happening even in the last week around the world. And so it can be overwhelming as Christians to think about this. And so I'm grateful that Doug and John, who have been in ministry for over 30 years, would be willing to come and talk about some of this stuff. And so, um, so I want to begin, John, with you and ask, um, I can imagine people who hear that list and have a dozen other things that immediately come to mind, and they, there can be this impulse to think the sky is falling, that everything's coming unraveled, uh, it's fragmenting, it's breaking up, and there can be a kind of panic or anxiety or anger or all sorts of emotions just immediately flood to the surface. And I think it would be helpful to set the tone by maybe addressing that at the front end, because I know that there's people in this crowd, and I'm sure there's people on the web who are feeling some of those emotions. So what would you say as a way of setting that tone for how we should talk about all of these issues we're going to try to address? 
if somebody said to me, uh, do you think the sky's falling? I would, of course, ask them to define their terms. I says, yes, you would. Which sky uh, and, and what fall? And, um, because, of course, the sky is falling if, if your sky is your old America that you once loved and was mainly a, a Protestant, white, ethical, more or less marginally, externally biblical framework. It's, that is falling. And uh, you, you should not have that as your sky, would be my next thing to say. God should be your sky, and that sky will never fall. I mean, my effort for all these years of ministry has been to try to build fiber into the faith of our people in terms of the sovereignty of God, that he rules over the nations. He puts governors and kings and princes and chiefs including Obama, in office, and he rules everything you just said, and he has purposes in it, and he's wise in it, and he's good in it, and therefore our orientation towards the world should be Godward to the degree that it's not Godward. I think fears will rise, and we'll be nervous, we'll be panicky, we'll be self-consumed, we won't be loving anymore, we won't be mission-oriented, we won't be outward-directed, we'll be all moving into our little little huddles and, and enclaves and talking endlessly about the bad guys. And I think that does nobody any good. Doesn't do us any good, doesn't do the world any good. And so I, I want people to be Godward and biblical rather than uh, focusing on the social issues minus God. And if they are, and they've been taught well, or they believe well about God's sovereignty over all things, his purposefulness in all things, that things are going somewhere, and they will get there. God has a plan. This is not circling around. This is a line somewhere. Then they can know, okay, I'm on the line, and the line goes zigzaggy. God never goes from point A to point B in a straight line, it seems to me, in the Bible and in experience. But he knows exactly why these detours are happening, and he means to, to get to a place where his name is exalted and all the nations are, are gathered in and his kingdom is going gonna, is gonna to come. So that would be my orientation, is that we, we just teach our people to be Godward at these moments. And then as they circulate among, among their nervous people, and even the secular world can be nervous because this isn't just... Christians who are in, in trouble, we've got enemies. I mean, if, if things happened here uh, as frequently as they're happening in Nigeria or in Pakistan right now or in Syria, we wouldn't be talking about some of the little problems we, we would have. We, we would be really threatened. Somebody walked into this church, mows down 50 people like happened in Nigeria yesterday. That would be a new level of concern, and, and I think that's likely. Uh, not because of the government necessarily, but because it's only the providential hand of God that for the last, what, 12 years since 9-11, uh, we haven't had another one. I just think that's incredible. And I just say, why, God? Why have you done that for us? Why have you restrained Islamists in this country the way you have? Incredibly. And yet he could just lift that hand any moment, and we should be ready to say he knows what he's doing now in the restraint, and he knows what he's doing if he, if he lifts his restraining hand. Doug, maybe another reaction that I think people could have would be sort of a fatalism 
you know, a fatal, fatalism. So what can we do? It's just the world, this is what the world does. It's, it's just that way. And so um, we ought not spend our time spending time talking. We, we shouldn't have this discussion. We should be preaching the gospel. We should be doing something other than talking about uh, these sort of things. And because it's, that's just going to happen and there's nothing we can really do. What would you say to the people who might think, why would you have this conversation? There's nothing you can do. Well, before answering that, I'd like to amen what John, John just said. If um, wherever America is right now, uh, approaching the end of 2013, we are at that spot because God ordained before the foundation of the world that this is where he wanted us right now in this way, in this fashion. So if a sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father, how, how much less is it possible for us to be in this situation um, in, in a way contrary to his will in any way? So this is God's doing. Um, Corey Ten Boom said that God has no problems, only plans. God has no problems. Uh, he's not, he, he has decreed all of this. But to answer your question, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our children that we may keep the words of this law. So God's decrees, we, we can affirm and do affirm that he decrees everything that comes to pass. God is sovereign over all things. But we are not supposed to conduct our lives uh, out of a constructed argument from that major premise. God is sovereign, therefore I'm just going to become fatalistic, or God is sovereign, therefore I'm not going to do anything. God is sovereign, I have absolute faith in that, and the things revealed belong to us and to our children. He tells us what to do. If we believe God is sovereign, then we are supposed to be obedient. If we, he, he is sovereign, he's told us what to do, and so we should seek to uh, obey him, and of course, all obedience begins with obedience to the gospel, right? So, it, then you come to the people you referenced, well, why don't we just uh, hunker down and preach the gospel? Well, because whenever you go into the, well, I agree with that, actually, we should preach the gospel, but we shouldn't preach a truncated, a truncated mini-gospel. We, we preach the gospel, and all the way through the book of Acts, what do you, how do preachers of the gospel preach? Repent and believe. Repent of what? Right? Repent of what? Is abortion on that list? Is, a, is racism on that list? Is uh, the cultural widespread homosexual marriage, is that on the list? Do we repent of that? If you want to go out and preach the gospel without reference to the law of God at the individual level and the societal level, if you want to preach the gospel without reference to cultural sins as well as individual sins, then I would submit you are not preaching the gospel at all. You are, what you're doing is you're trying to uh, preach a little feel-good escape pod gospel, which is not the same thing that enables you to stand up to lawless thrones. That's helpful, and I think we'll see how, how, what the gospel does then when, we, when we're faced with some of these others. But before, yeah. Can, yeah. Interesting the way you took that, uh, repent and believe the gospel, repent from what? There's another way to, 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 to justify this conversation or talking as pastors or talking as Christians about wider issues, namely that um, after you repent, John says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, as soon as you preach the gospel 
to unbelievers, they repent, they, they turn away from the sins that they know, their next question is, what should I do tomorrow? <laughs> and that's all the New Testament epistles are written to answer that question. Just guidelines. You, you cannot not talk about how to live because the Christian life is calling you out of darkness into light. We live and relate in a real world. Real world is full of questions. I, th I think the, the, the more or less fundamentalist church that I grew up in that hadn't yet kind of tasted what was happening in the late 40s with the renewal of the, of the social conscience with Carl Henry simply sidestepped over and over again questions that were pressing right on them with regard to, okay, I'm a Christian now. You've got me saved. I am born again. Uh, what do I do? And if the answer is only get another person born again, after about 10 of those or 20, I mean, this was really real for me in college, evangelism started to become meaningless. It felt like I was asking people to join what? What, 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 what were you joining? What? Secret handshake club. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like one of those multi-level marketing deals where, you know, you get in and what, what do you do now? Get other people yeah. in. And then you get other people in. But exactly. And if, if the answer came back, you're asking them to join non-going to hell. I said, well, that's true. That's absolutely true. And that's the main thing I am rescuing them from. But now they've got about 60 years before that kicks in. <laughs> what? what? What will they do for those 60 years? They're not, they're not all becoming evangelists. They're not all becoming missionaries whose full-time work is to, to, to only tell people about the dangers of eternity. They're going to work. That's, that's why how, how should we then live is the Christian discipleship question. Right, we preach the gospel, people repent, individual sins, and then they, they're saved and they're situated, they get their job in order, their families in order, and now how do I, how do I pray as a citizen? How do I, how, what do I do in my vocation? I'm, let's say I'm a, uh, an attorney, or let's say you're uh, a politician, you're, you're hold, you hold office. What does Jesus want me to do here? How does he want me to behave here? And I remember 30 years or so ago talking to a campus minister, and he showed me one of the surveys that a lot campus ministries do, and, and the survey had a bunch of questions on it. Uh, and it said, in effect, you know, I forget what the laundry list of problems was, but it wasn't identical today to what we'd have today, but threat of nuclear war and, you know, all of these things. And it said, do you, uh, do you realize that Jesus is the answer to all these things? And I said to this campus minister, that's really cool. What are the answers? <laughs> and it became apparent that those questions, they raised all those political questions as scary things that would make people un, uncertain about their lives and they'd be frightened and they'd call on Jesus and then forget about those questions entirely. Well, forgetting about those questions entirely is not the same thing as answering them. So if I want to be a Christian who loves the Lord my God with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength, everything I've got, well, part of my mind has to do with politics, culture. Um, purchases, going out to the mall. What do I buy and what do I don't buy at the mall? What do, uh, how do I vote? How do I uh, engage, with my engage with my neighbor over various issues? What am I supposed to do and how am I supposed to find out? Well, 
I believe that we just skirt around that because it involves a lot of Bible study and it looks suspiciously like work. Um, before diving into some of these other issues, there's one other thing I think I want to bring out on the table here at the beginning. Um, and uh, I think for some people here and then maybe some people who are watching on the web, um, I think one of the questions has to do with John, why the two of you in particular, and it has to do with um, some things that Doug's written in the past on questions of race and slavery and things like that. And, and so those questions have come up uh, in blog discussions, and you had a, a lengthy exchange with the BD on Yabwile back in the spring. And, uh, and so, John, I'm just wondering if you want to say, say something about um, here we are on a stage together. You just, Doug just spoke at the National Conference for Desiring God, and there's people that have been concerned about this because of things they've heard. And so I'm just wondering if you'd want to maybe address that here at the, at the beginning before we get any farther in. I knew you were going to ask that, uh, and therefore I, I prepared some notes. Um, let, me, let me set it up, uh, and please, either of you jump in along the way, because I, I don't want to talk. I want this to be a monologue. Um, but it is important that some of you are saying, I don't have a clue what you just said and don't know what you're talking about, and others of you are, are here precisely perhaps because you saw me tweet that this isn't going to include race tonight. Um, Doug wrote a book years ago, and it, the book, every now and then, unfortunately, gets read. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not the way Doug Unlike would. some of the other books. <laughs> Um, and getting read really offends. Um, and so there was another flare-up of that offense in the spring over some things that Doug wrote in, in the book. Um, we met with uh, five African-American, I think it was five, six maybe, uh, African-American brothers on Friday morning plus seven others um, and, and tried to deal face-to-face -face with some of these things. And we, including you and me and, uh, and others. We, we three here, plus I think four other non-African-Americans, non and, and then to try to just you know, put a face on it and, and talk. And it was tense, and it was good. I think it ended helpfully and good. So I, w I want you to know that one of the things I appreciate about Doug is walking toward reconciliation and toward efforts to talk and understand rather than away. And because there are a lot of people who walk away quick from difficult conversations. Um, here are the issues that came up. I'll, I'll tick them off. One, uh, Doug has been perceived as minimizing the horrors of slavery and the slave trade and calling it more benign than it really was. Um, that's one. African Americans read some of his statements and say, I can't believe it. I just can't believe he said that. Uh, and the second one would be. Doug disapproves of the Civil War as the best way to solve that problem, which he does believe is a problem. But rather, gospel gradualism, reformation rather than revolution, would have been preferred rather than a Civil War. A third implication, a third thing that, that, that uh, offends or confuses is a line Doug draws from the overweening uh, power of the federal government to move on state rights 
leading to the overweening power of the judiciary today to nullify all the state's laws on abortion. He draws a line from the Civil War to where we are today. It's the BD with whom he, he communicated didn't like that, didn't agree with that, thinks that's historically naive, and so there's a, a third or whatever my count is. Uh, here's another one. Um, Doug's way of expressing things has been offensive or insensitive to many. Now, th those are the, I think, four things that I have discerned. And the, the upshot of those, um, so, so people wrote to me, they said, John, you love racial reconciliation. You work hard at racial harmony. And this guy's messing it up. So what's going on here? I mean, he's coming to your conference, and you're going to sit with him, and there he is, live in the flesh, right, <laughs> right there. Um, so really, John, come on, um, what, what's the deal? How, do you, how are you thinking about this? And you know, you, you really should be careful um, to make judgments too quickly, because you never know what's being said behind the scenes. You never know what's being done towards reconciliation off Twitter, which isn't the best way to do it. Um, so you got to be careful, but he, here, here are my, here's the upshot of Thabiti Anyabwile, African-American pastor, and Doug engaging in about 10 exchanges, which amounted to 111 single-spaced pages of blogging, every word of which I read, underlined, annotated, prayed over. And then these conversations that we're having uh, in response to it. Um, number one, that interchange between a black brother and this offensive white brother was unbelievably beautiful. Was a model for the internet of which I have never seen the like. And I am thrilled that they had it. And Doug said, quoting Doug, I have never had a critic come at me from such a completely different point of compass who has nevertheless treated me with as much grace, justice, fairness, intelligence, love as Thabiti has. I have never experienced anything like it, and I am profoundly grateful. And, and Thabiti, if you're watching this down in the Cayman right now, I just want to thank you for your patience with this rascal over here and, and that you... Um, elicited that from Doug. That's an, un, that's an am amazingly high praise, and it's a beautiful thing, and, and, and Thabiti deserves it, and I, I thank him for the effort he made to understand Doug. They didn't wind up agreeing on everything, but my, what progress they made. So that's, that's number one upshot. Number two, uh, there are only two, and this one has about six subpoints. so um, <laughs> I'll try to do it quick. Um, I'm going to speak for Doug here because it's important that you hear why I have him here. Okay? He, can, he can tell me whether I'm getting this right or not, but I'm, I'm trying to set what I see in Doug that makes me risk bringing him here. Number one, Doug hates racism from the core of his gospel soul. Number two, Doug has a passion to see Historically, and wherever today, slavery ended by gospel means, not endorsed. Number three, 
Doug has an abomination for the atrocities of the Middle Passage and the magnitude of millions of lives lost and the horrors of the mistreatment of blacks both in antebellum and Jim Crow America. He he hasn't walked, he didn't grow up in Idaho. He can talk about that if he wants to. Um, Number four, um, Doug conceded that Thabiti was right in significant ways. Here's a question. Thabiti said, do you think it might be possible that a reasonable man might take legitimate offense at the way you put some things in your book? Doug, in the next blog post. Thabiti, the answer to that question is yes, and was the reason why I sought your forgiveness in the earlier post, and I presume is the reason why he said I'd be happy if the book was never, never sold another copy. Um, fifth, Doug has a real concern not to lead America into another civil war. That's not naive uh, grandstanding. And he could tell you why, and, and if you had sense or lived the last, say if you grew, if you were thinking in the late 80s and early 90s when he and I were being arrested together in front of abortion clinics and smelled where the wind was blowing, that would not be an irrelevant comment to you. But some of you are too young to even know what it was like there and how it might have gone so differently. So Doug, you can relate to that if you want. So there is a connection between whether you approve of the Civil War as a way to end slavery and whether you approve of war to end abortion. And sixth, um, Doug has a readiness to listen and move toward, not away from reconciliation. And uh, here's my last paragraph. I'll stop. Uh, My position is that these convictions that Doug has about the evil of racism, the evil of chattel slavery, the evil of stealing human beings, and, and all the horrors that went around the whole phenomenon and, and are still around in many places in the world today. His, his belief in the centrality of the gospel as a, a reconciler of people to God and to each other in Christ across ethnicities especially. I'm ready to stand with him e- even if there are the differences about historical judgments concerning what was the best way to end slavery or what was the connection between the Civil War and the situation of judicial hubris today. So that's a summary of what happened, uh, what he said, what he backed away from, what I tried to understand along the way and, and where I am tonight. Now, we. You can either jump in and ask a question, or Doug can jump well, in. Or yeah, I just like I was going to let you if you want to add let, anything or, yeah. or say let me else. let me add just um, a, f- a few things to this. First, I agree with everything John said in the summary. So, but I don't want my agreement to sound clinical. I think it's important for you all to hear me say some of these things in my own voice and not just say yeah what he said, um, even though I agree with what uh, with what John said. So I agree with that. That's amen to, to all of that. I think the summary is accurate. The second thing is um, I've known for some time that Bethlehem and the ministry here has had racial reconciliation um, as a centerpiece of uh, what they've been trying to do in cultural engagement. 
Um, it's not a mistake that, that John uh, preaches annually, had preached annually on racial reconciliation and on the sanctity of human life Sunday. That, uh, so I, I've known that for some time, and I wouldn't want my agreeing to come here in any way to put that in jeopardy. I, I, don't, I don't want to put it in jeopardy, and if I thought it really would put it in jeopardy, I would decline to come on my, on my own because I wouldn't want to risk a valuable work like that just to have a, an opportunity to speak. Well, someone's going to say, but yes, I think you are putting it in jeopardy. That, that certainly is being asserted, that it's being put, put in jeopardy, and I would put this important tagline on it. I believe real reconciliation at whatever level uh, always involves hard conversations with all participants uh, contributing to the conversation. You can't simply have group hug racial reconciliation or group hug any kind of reconciliation. When I'm doing marriage counseling and I'm trying to get an intractable situation of a husband and wife who aren't speaking to each other or close to not speaking to each, to each other, I want to hear, I, I'm there as a referee, I'm there as, as a counselor, and I want to hear both of them, each of them, say what they think. I, I, don't, want a, I don't want a Sunday school answer. I don't want you to give me what you think the preacher what you think the preacher might want to hear. I want you to say what you think, and I want you to say what you think so we can actually get at it. And I, I believe it's hard. I, I know that my presence here, uh, this is not the first time I've come here, I know that me coming here has created problems for DG and for the ministry here that they would not have had had they uh, not had me. But I, but I also believe that it's moved the ball in the right direction because I believe that some of the hard conversations that have resulted uh, have been very fruitful. I thought, I thought the meeting we had on Friday morning was, was very fruitful, and as John said, there were some tense moments, and there were places where you thought this could go sideways, uh, but it was good. I thought it was spiritually healthy, and I was very profoundly grateful um, to Joe for helping coordinate it, set it up, grateful to the, other, the people who don't see things the way I do coming and being willing to talk. Um, I, th I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was a, a very good thing. And second, I wanted to make sure I, I, I added in my own voice my gratitude to Thabiti for what he did. It really is true. This is not my first rodeo. I've, you know, I've, I've been involved in this discussion for this discussion for over a decade and other wrangles in other settings. And it's just remarkable how Thabiti, before he, in, before he differed with me, before he took me to task, before he, he uh, did any of that, he stated my arguments in a way that I would say, yes, that's what I'm saying. And he stated them accurately. And that almost never happens. You know, so when I uh, say, uh, you know, I wrote in the book, Black and Tan is the book, when I wrote in that book that I despise the slave trade, I, I believe that it, it, it was an iniquitous traffic, and then to have someone represent me as supportive of the slave trade, it's just the exact opposite of what I hold. Uh, and Thabiti was very careful, and, he dis and, and his care was made all the more remarkable by the fact that he, um, he didn't agree with me. You know, he, was, he differed, but he stated my arguments the way um, I would have stated them myself. And that's, that's something that I, I teach rhetoric students, uh, or when, if I'm teaching debate, 
one of the fundamental rules is that you have to be able to state your opponent's arguments in terms that he himself would avow. And if you, if you can do that, then you've got the right to engage. And Thabiti, um, uh, above all the men on the planet on this issue, has an open door with me. He can engage with me anytime he wants because, because he, he actually did that. The other thing I wanted to add to what John said about the, the way it was going in the late 80s, early 90s, and this is, this is one of the central reasons why I first started writing about slavery, why I start, first started writing about this at all. It was not because I wanted a do-over at Gettysburg. It was, it was not because I wanted to go back and refight the Civil War. It was not because I'm interested in any kind of neo-Confederate anything. That wasn't it. I was involved in the pro-life movement. Uh, John mentioned he'd been arrested at Operation Rescue. I was, uh, I was arrested once in, an, in a rescue operation in, in Spokane. I don't think it was, a, it was uh, not Operation Rescue, but it was a rescue-like thing. Um, and at that time, with Operation Rescue, there was a crackle in the air, and there were a number of people on the pro-life side who were, not to put too fine a point on it, hotheads. There were, there were people who were just uh, um, revolutionary in their sentiments. They wanted to, um, they wanted to start a, an armed conflict. Uh, one of them was named Paul Hill. Uh, Paul Hill was, if you remember, was the... Um, uh, the, the, the man who shot the abortionist in Florida. He has since then been executed. Uh, he was uh, someone who was operating out of our circles, to put it. Uh, um, he, he was excommunicated from a church pastored by a good friend of mine, uh, ex uh, excommunicated before the murder simply because of his revolutionary uh, approach. He was a seminary classmate of the co-author with the booklet that I wrote, Steve Wilkins, he was a seminary class, classmate, uh, graduated from RTS uh, in Jackson. Uh, he spent hours on the phone with Steve, uh, and Steve was, no, no. And, and Paul Brown wanted to be the John Brown of the pro-life movement. He wanted to start a shooting war. You know, th that's what he, he wanted. And so this issue for me wasn't academic. It, it wasn't, let's, let's dig up something from 150 years ago and see how many people we can make mad. Um, we were trying to head something off. We were trying to prevent a, a certain line of thinking from developing, and we wanted, I'm, I'm as pro-life as, as it gets, but I want the gospel to bring reformation. I don't want uh, hotheads to bring revolution. Revolution always makes it worse. You know, you, you, you get the peasants with the pitchforks moment, and you, you got a feel-good mo you know, moment for 15 minutes, but then they trundle out the guillotines and, and, and the horror starts. So that was, that was my interest in writing. There were other factors, but that was a central driving force. Paul Hill's wife, I met at, uh, I met at one of our, before he was executed, at one of our education conventions, a sweet Christian woman, the kind of woman you would meet at a Christian uh, convention. Her husband's in prison for killing this guy. It, so it's not, it wasn't a distant, far-removed thing from me. For me, um, the, the abortion issue and the slavery issue were both monumental issues. I believe that we, because we didn't uh, address that, 
issue in the 19th century the way we should have. It was a, a bloodbath, and I was fearful that I was in the middle of something very similar. That Operation Rescue moment has, has passed, it's gone by, we, the, the, that crackle's not in the air now for various social uh, reasons, but it certainly was um, at the time. So that's a, a major consideration. That's helpful, and I think um, the thing that I appreciated sitting in on the discussion on Friday um, was both the tension in the room, which I think was good because it meant that people were actually being honest, and um, the other thing was good is that we left and prayed together, hugged each other, and walked out of the room as brothers in Jesus. And, um, I th and I don't think it resolved all the issues. I don't think it's ended it in any way, but I think it was a good step. And we wanted to address it here tonight before we got to some of these other things because we knew it was looming, at least in some minds. And in my mind, I think that um, hopefully in the future we can have more of those. We could have maybe if, if the BD or someone else would be willing to come and we could have more of a, a, a discussion uh, about these in more detail. Um, I think that would be wonderful, so. One of the lessons, and, and just see if this fits to your experience in some way, that I took away from Friday morning, which is kind of a new, new takeaway, was as I, I didn't say a word in that meeting. I wanted to, but I didn't. And I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this and watching. I'm trying to learn what is going on here. And one of the things that was going on was this. One of the African-American brothers, one of the most articulate, forceful brothers, communicated something that's so important for me to get. He said, in effect, um, we sort of get the indignation of the white community about abortion. They kind of talk with some emotion about how big that horror is. And then when they talk about the evils of slavery, or the Middle Passage with all the m millions of lives lost on the boats coming over, the same passion doesn't seem to be there. And, and what, what I realized was what is needed often in reconciliation is an emotional sense of connecting. Not just a statement, but you feel what I feel? Maybe you're a Jew, say, and you hear me, you hear me use the word holocaust for abortion. And you say, my grandfather. And, and it, there's something that just says, I don't want you to use that word. That means so much more, something different to me. Now, at a rational level, we may just not agree with, with that, but that's reality. That's reality. And so... Um, when it comes to things you're dealing with, individually or in groups, you get to, you get to discern what is not only the, the intellectual quotient here of how this is going, but what am I communicating by my feelings? And Doug's, Doug didn't. Uh, Doug's not wired that way. <laughs> to, to, he's not John Piper. I'm, I said, I don't know if I can, I don't even know if I can talk with one hand on this we, microphone. We used handhelds tonight because we were trying to restrain him. And that's a, that's going to make it harder for him in, in black-white relationships. I think it's one of the reasons I've been able to be more welcomed because Piper's passion kicks in. And, and one of the reasons that passion is there on this issue, and, and Doug has it, that the same experience is that I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. 
I feel horrible about what I saw there. I feel horrible about what I did there in participation in colored and white fountains, colored and white bathrooms, no restroom available for you at this gas station. You can't go into the SNS cafeteria, and on and on. And as I look back, I was just totally into that, totally into that and okay with it. So that I've got this emotional wrenching of horror about that little taste of it, and had there been lynchings in my town, castrations in my town, to which I approved, then where would my emotions be? So just that little tip off that one of the things that's got to happen in order for, for uh, reconciliation to feel authentic is for different groups to feel like, like you, you get, get their, their anger, or you get their memory or their indignation. Go ahead. Um. Yes and amen. And one of the reasons why that meeting was so valuable is even though I'm not uh, as spun tight as John can be and bouncy, <laughs> bouncy, bouncy is the word. Uh, uh, um, I'm not. I'm just not wired that way emotionally. That's not who I am. At the same time, I, uh, however it is that I hate things, right? How, how you know if whatever it is that I hate, I hate racism that way. And that can come across in a face-to-face meeting in a way that it will not in a book. You know, if, if, if someone doesn't know my personality and it, you, you get it typeset, it can look like I'm ticking the box. Yes, I disapprove of this, I disapprove of this, I disapprove of this next thing. And so um, that meeting, I think, is helpful because I can say, no, I really do hate this kind of thing. Like John, I, I grew up in a segregated city. I, when I was a boy, uh, Annap- Annapolis, Maryland, uh, I went to the um, white elementary school three miles from our house, two, two or three miles from our house. My uh, uh, Adams Park Elementary, the black elementary school, was just a block away, just a block down the, the street. Uh, I went to an all-white elementary school in a segregated city. Then the, the integration movement began. I then went to a forcibly integrated um, middle school uh, and white flight, ha- you know, the, the white flight, the, a bunch of private academies started because of the, the whites fled. And my father was very much involved in uh, not being a part of that. He was, so basically I was taught. I grew up in the midst of that, but I was uh, taught to hate it. Our, our family was against it, we hated it, we were opposed, and, and we're, we're, not, um, we're not emotionally wired in such a way that it's expressed that way, but ever, however uh, I have a need to express it, however that comes across, it will come across in a face-to-face meeting far better than it will come across in an academic uh, in an academic setting. One other thing I'll, I would like to do real, real quick, and, and that is um, I don't. I think with real re- racial reconciliation or ethnic reconciliation or uh, uh, even ac- across the sexual divide, men and women, the war between the sexes, all the places where people get estranged from one another, I don't think it's surprising that the solution to this is God-centeredness, not people-centeredness. If we 
if we make it our, our we, all of us here have outrage limitations, either because of your upbringing or just because you're going to shut down after you watch the evening news and you Pakistan and what's happening to the, the Christians in Syria, and then you, you read what happened in Rwanda, what, you, what happened, you know, and then the, the, the Holocaust in World War II and what happened in the slave trade, and it's just one horror after another. And uh, Richard Weaver, in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, has a chapter called The Great Synopticon, where he was objecting to, at that time, decades ago, how news is presented, this horror, this horror, this horror, and now this you know, a little happy bubblegum commercial, and, and then you come back to the, the horror. Well, we, we get to a certain level of this, and we just shut down. We, we can't process it. We can't carry that weight. But in Revelation 7 and Revelation 21, it says that God will wipe every tear. God is the only one who can address every, uh, redress every wrong. God is the one who in the last judgment is going to put absolutely everything right. So my I, I can't do that. I'm not in that position. But I am in a position to amen that and, and say whatever he does, I want to be behind. And in the meantime, that re generates the question, you love your neighbor. And then the question is, who is my neighbor? And that is whoever God's put in front of you. And as an American, in a racially divided America, that means my neighbor is my black brother. And so I have to say to him, I want, to, I want you to know that when God wipes every tear away that was shed because of the Middle Passage, I want you to know that I stand with you and am rejoicing that God is doing that. And that is my responsibility. But I can't carry the world because I can't try to be God. I can be a neighbor to my neighbor. I can do that and leave the, the macro judgment uh, to God. If we treat suffering as a zero-sum game, when one person goes into pro-life work, well, aren't you worried about race? Or if they go into racial reconciliation, why are you ignoring the babies? Why, you know, why are you doing all this? And then we get all tangled up. And I, I want us to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable and have the hard conversation, you know? And I believe that whites, like me, need to hear from our black brothers certain hard truths. But I also believe that it goes the other way, all right? I, I believe that we have to be able to say, look, brothers, we have the most radically pro-abortion president ever, all right? I believe uh, Obama's uh, abortion policies, uh, policies are ghoulish. It's just wicked. Can we have a talk about how we all voted? And why? Can we, can we talk about the disproportionate impact that abortion is having on the African-American community? Is, can, has anybody read what Margaret Sanger wrote in Plan, the founder of Planned Parenthood, what she wrote about what her intention was in this? Can we talk about that? I think we must talk, I think we must, but in order to be able to, you have to have an audience and you, they have to know, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. That, that's a good maybe tr place to transition into a couple other questions uh, you mentioned there at the end um, about the abortion and how do we vote. And so one question I've, I've had, um, and I don't know that I've ever seen anybody address it, so I'm interested to hear what you two say. Um, is it a, given, given the horror that is uh, abortion of chill, killing children in the womb, and given that there are men and women in this country who maybe don't do the evil, 
but fund the evil, support the evil, protect the evil, make sure that it can happen as often as it can. Um, so politicians, um, is, it, is it a sin uh, against God for a Christian to vote for a politician who openly supports abortion? Is that a sin? And if it is a sin, is it the sort of thing that pastors ought to regularly, say around election time, remind their people, remember there are some issues where Christians can disagree on policies. There are some issues where it's so clear that there is no other way to go. And so it is a sin for Christians to vote for uh, a pro-abortion politician and that if they have, if some, say, in this room or on, on the line have done that, they ought to repent of it. That's something that Jesus will ask them about on the last day. So I'm just curious, John, maybe start with you and how you would answer that question. Can, can, vote, can we sin in voting? Right. Um, I took an African-American brother out to lunch a year ago on that issue. I just want to hear him. I said, help me understand why, you know, the vast majority of African-Americans who are believers and who are pro-life would vote for Obama. Just help me. It was a very helpful conversation. I recommend all of you do that. Just find, find somebody and uh, take them out to lunch and, and ask that question, especially somebody, say, over 50. Over 50. Um, and um, I went into that conversation disposed to try to say, I, I don't get this, and, and, and uh, no way, because <laughs> I, I get angry when I think about abortion and, and the policies that govern this country. However, to, to hear his perspective uh, on other issues that to him, and reasonably so, seemed huge and justice-oriented and life-destroying and life-enhancing, whole cluster of them, economic questions and policy questions and um, college loan questions. I mean, I, I just heard things I'd never heard before, just tumbling out that let me inside the skin of somebody who is a Christian, pro-life, and would vote for Obama. And I came away feeling like things are more complex. And decisions you make about a candidate who is wrong on this, this, and this, wrong on, right on this, this, and this, and trying to weigh the two, one might make a judgment that this terrible wrong in judgment with regard to Obama might be outweighed by these three or four factors over here where they think he will do more good, all things considered. And I may look at that and say, I don't see that. But that statement, I don't see that, I don't think is probably enough for me to stand in the pulpit and call for him to repent. It's not that clear for me. So my answer is, is no, I, I probably wouldn't. Simple, black and white, if you vote, you have sinned, you need to repent, you can come under church discipline. It isn't that. So the way I will preach is to say, uh, those policies are ghoulish, they're wicked, they're contrary to scripture and the, the, the inconsistencies of his attitude towards um, the rights of women and the horrible example he's setting for his precious daughters in saying that they should have the same reproductive rights as the boy has who gets them pregnant. Ooh, I just want to, I'm going to talk about that. But 
I'm going to realize life is really complicated. There are other issues that are also, and I've, I've got blind spots with regard to some of those other issues, and, and um, I need to learn more about that. Last thing, and then I'd love to hear what Doug has to say on this. Um, the answer might be, yes, voting is always sin, whichever side you vote for. Um, don't, don't vote. It only encourages them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I, didn't, I wasn't even thinking of a, a non-vote is, is a statement of the unrighteousness of the world. I was just thinking that there are choices you make in life that are almost always involve things you wish they didn't, hurtful things and damaging things, and, and, and the non-action seems as damaging, and therefore you make your choice of the lesser evils, and is that a sin? Is that a sin to embrace, to affirm somebody? Uh, if, you, if you saw from God's perspective, I think you could always sort it out. Me, anyway, I don't, I'm not able to sort it out, so I'm thankful that Jesus is merciful to me, and I kind of end every conversation like this by loving the gospel. Yeah. Um, let me first say that I believe that God is perfect, but not a perfectionist, and I can envision situations where a godly Christian with his eyes open could vote for a candidate who was not born again, didn't love God, didn't love Jesus, and was pro-choice in his own, uh, you know, but it would be something like, in my book, it'd be something like this. Suppose it was a radical libertarian who, if elected governor, was going to cut off every dime from Planned Parenthood, right? He, 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 uh, he was pro-choice. He, he didn't have a problem with a, a, any moral problem with abortion, but he was going to behave in such a way that the number of abortions would plummet, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sign me up. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have no, not only would I not have a problem with someone voting for that guy, I probably would vote for him uh, too as a tactical move. But you have to under, and then I'd want to echo what John said about how, how complex these things are, but then say, but it's even more complicated than that, right? So let's go back to our, our previous thing. The Civil War was it popularly said it was not about slavery. It was about constitutional issues, states' rights. It was a tax revolt. The tariff was a big issue. Centralization. You had all these uh, other issues going on. And as soon as you say, well, it's complex, it's complicated, when people are drawing a hard, hard line, that becomes an additional complication to, to the whole thing. Um, so it's, it's dangerous territory to, to go there because all of, it's like you're like the guy who mentioned Gettysburg again. You become like the guy who wore a blue coat and gray trousers to try to make peace. And, and he, he got, he got shot, shot, shot at both, both, both sides. Um, <laughs> that, that's not the way to make peace. When I, and so I would, I would approach a conversation with uh, an African-American brother differently on this because many of, he would say, yes, I know uh, African-American children are disproportionately targeted and I object to that. I am pro-life, but I would vote for this candidate because I think the justice issues that he is advocating over here out, outweigh this. Well, first, I don't think it, I, I don't think it's that kind of issue. Um, but if you admit of that kind of calculus, these children can be sacrificed so that we can have college loan guarantees, 
or these children can be sacrificed so, so that we may have hiring um, uh, policies that are not as uh, unequal, or unequal or lopsided. Or what, well, look what you're, now look what you're doing. And when Christians 200 years from now are saying, this was the 20th century's slave trade, this was the 20th century's middle passage, and we have no patience for people in the 19th century who's, who were saying it's complicated. Uh, well, how do we get to say it's complicated? The, Jesus says, uh, judge not lest you be judged, for the judgment with which you judge, you shall be judged. If I say it's complicated, other people get to say it's complicated. If, if, uh, if you object to how Mus Muslim women are treated, and someone says, well, it's complicated, you know, right. it's complicated. Well, okay, yes, but it ought not to be complicated. Right? Repentance is not complicated. Uh, the gospel is not complicated. We, we declare it and we, we preach that. Then one last thing, and I believe that because of this discrepancy, I believe a lot of the pro-justice things that someone might say, well, I think Obama would do this and this and this for our people, I believe that those things are a lie. Um, basically, we have had a war on poverty ever, ever since I can remember LBJ started it. And if we took all the money we spent on eradicating poverty and just gave it to the poor people, they'd all be millionaires, right? But the people who are making money, as this was a saying from the Middle Ages, the poor are a gold mine. And, uh, and Judas found this out. Why was this money not taken and given to the poor? Why, why did this woman buy the ointment? And, and John tells us that he wasn't concerned about the poor. He said, he said this because he was the treasurer and he used to help himself to the, uh, into what was in the money bag. So consequently, I believe, I believe African Americans are being ripped off. I, believe, I don't believe it's, I don't think they were just being wronged in horrendous ways a century ago. I believe they're being wronged in horrendous ways now. And I think we need to be teaching and this is cultural engagement, I think we need to be teaching basic economics. I think we need to be teaching how prices are fixed, how wealth is created, how, how, how do you rise out of poverty? How does that actually happen? Um, and I would commend economists like Thomas Sowell. I'd say, that man knows how this is done, and you don't, you don't get people out of poverty by, by government largesse. It just, it, it doesn't work. It creates constituencies, not um, responsibility and, and independence from the government. And those last observations will go down with a certain generation of African Americans with rage. In other words, they, they, will, they will hear you as insensitive and uncaring and uh, racist um, and, and another layer or generation or um, Thomas Sowell type, Shelby Steele type, will say that's exactly the conversation we need. But that is a huge, I mean, it's, a, it's almost the same kind of conversational dynamic that we're in on the other issue. That the, 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 the willingness to distinguish economic good from immediate sensitivity to um, single motherhood or poverty, that is a very, that calls for remarkable emotional uh, 
clarity, stability, maturity, and many of us find ourselves unready for it, unwilling to have it. To, to, hear, to hear Doug say what he just said on economics and say, now, is there a real love for the poor there? And you either going to trust him that he is deeply convinced that economic policies of a certain more conservative kind will go down with great benefit for the poor, even though it might look like you're pulling the plug on some of the policies that are ostensibly for the poor, there's got to be a lot of trust there. So I'm just pointing out that, that the last five minutes of your conversation are going to be heard by a certain generation of African Americans. Uh, it's, like it's like the conversation between, uh, I think, Eric Dyson and Bill Cosby. Cosby saying things like that, and Dyson saying you're just naive. And, and you're giving, giving up the, the ship. You really don't. I, I, I agree that it, I walked into a minefield and I've been, yeah, that, that's how it comes across. And, and, if, and if people don't trust you, then they're going to hear it the wrong way. And you, they can't trust you unless there's a relationship there or if there's a reason for them. If there has to be a reason for them to trust you. But I, if, if someone's drowning... I don't want to throw them a feel-good anvil, right? right? I want to throw them a life preserver that will actually save their life. Now, I, uh, you know, and I'll confess it, in my politics and economics and so forth, I'm slightly to the left of King Arthur. You know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am a conservative, and I'm, I'm, you know, that, that is true. And I also confess that one of the besetting sins of conservatism, particularly on economics, can be it reduces to get a job, you hippie, you know, um, and it seems hard-hearted and calloused, and I'm just pro big business and that sort of thing. And I believe that that is a real sin on the part of conservatives, well-to-do conservatives, and Christian conservatives, upper middle class, uh, well-heeled Christian conservatives have come across like that. Well, I just I don't want to pay you a living wage because in the long run it'll be better for you. You know, and pat, 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 and off you go. That is a rhetorical bad place for conservatives and Christians to be. I, I grant it. But think about it for a minute. If a young black woman gets pregnant in the inner city today, the federal government will come in and pay her money provided the father of that child does not marry her. Right? If she marries, deal's off. And they're going to provide a paycheck that's much more than he could pr provide for her. We are, you, you get more of what you, you, you get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. And it is not compassionate to give, it, it, it can look like compassion, it can look like you're loving everybody, but you're killing them, you know. Uh, and, and so consequently, um, and, there, and I know that there are many Christians who've just tiptoed away from the whole thing because they have no desire whatever to be called a racist or a, you know, they just, I, I don't want to go there, so I'm just going to leave, I'm just going to leave that be. I'm going to give it a wide berth. Yeah, good. So that, that actually raises one issue that I wanted to get to, which was um, kind of the issue of, and it's kind of lurking in a lot of this sort of stuff as I even listen, um, and it's the issue of like reputation and what people call you and what you're willing to be called. And, um, you know, um, 
it seems like when whether whether we're talking about the racial issues, whether we're talking about abortion and how we navigate that, or whether we're in a moment hopefully have a chance to talk about some of the sexual issues that we're facing as a culture. Um, no matter if as soon as you engage on any of those, you are going to be called all kinds of names, and usually the names are going to be calculated to do the most damage to you given your context. In other words, if you're if you're a sort of um, young, hip sort of guy, um, one of the worst things you'd probably be called would be a, like a Republican or a conservative, right? That would be, that's a, it's a term of derision in that context. Whereas if you're in a suburb, there's other terms that you might be called racist or something like that, that would be more effective. And, um, and it seems like, I, I detect this in myself, and I think I detect it in other people. Um, I just not gonna, I'm not gonna touch that with a 10 foot pole because because I don't want to be associated with that. And so I just wanted to ask you guys, how much should that kind of calculation, um, what is the, what is the, what are they going to call me, play? Because there's a, there is, because the other part of me wants to say, and, I, and I'm not a pastor, I'm a professor, so I don't have a pulpit to, to say things from necessarily. But the other part of me wants to say, um, it, I don't care what they, they're going to call me. Is it true? Or, if it's not true, if, if I'm actually not a racist, and if I'm actually not a Republican or a, you know, a, a fanboy, part, partisan, something like that, I don't care what it sounds like. Is it true? And is, is, in other words, if there's evil happening, if it's harming people, if it's dishonoring to God, I want my pulpit to thunder, consequences be damned. And so, and so, is, is that, so I've got that impulse in me, and then I've got the other one that says, you need to mind your reputation. It matters how you're, how you're thought well about by outsiders. So I'm just curious, when you've got those two impulses, how do you navigate that as a pastor? There, there are two things. Peter says, if you're called uh, a murderer or a thief or whatever, uh, he said, don't worry about it as long as it's not true, <laughs> right? Right. So we should care very much about reputation issues if, if people accuse us of racism or, or theft or greed or those things. We, we want to always run an inventory. To, you know, is this true? Is there something to it? Is, um, am I, I don't want to just automatically dismiss those things. So I, I should always be reflective about, it, uh, is Peter's warning, is there something here for, for me? But if it's not true, Jesus says expressly that when men slander you, say all manner of evil about you. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. All right. So Jesus says, when all of a sudden, years ago, I remember I thinking, why you were so happy. <laughs> that's, that's why. That's why. <laughs> um, um, years ago, this is probably 20, 25 years ago, uh, Paul says somewhere, uh, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All right. And I used to wonder about that because. I was having a fa fabulous time, you know. Um, it, the church was going well, and our ministry, nice town, beautiful town to raise kids in. Everything was just very placid. And, uh, you know, it was like water skiing at 5 a.m., and everything was just uh, wonderful. And I, but this verse, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, which I did. I did want to live, I, I did want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And I said, what is this about? And then around 2002, it was as though somebody gave a signal, and I found myself standing at, you know, a barrage of dead cats and rotting vegetables, and, you know, everything came on, 
it came unstuck. And it was like, it was like saving up. And I remember telling Nancy, well, honey, this is my big promotion. <laughs> uh, and I, I think that that's what Jesus requires us to do. I knew, I knew that the things I was accused of were false. I, I knew that. And that, uh, and that in, um, I want to include in that an acknowledgement that I bore some responsibility and bear some responsibility for some of the false conclusions that some of the people drew. I'm not trying to take away any of that. But I knew that I wasn't what I was accused of being. I, I knew that. I, I knew I didn't believe this, I didn't believe this, I didn't think that, I hadn't done the other thing. I've been accused of, you know, it's just sort of astonishing. And Jesus says, hear that, read the blog post, open the letter, read the letter, uh, open the newspaper. There was one period in time where our church uh, was on the front page of our newspaper every night for like five or six nights and protesters and, you know, all this stuff. Jesus says, put that down, walk around the corner out of sight and throw a little party. That's what he says to do. Do a little jig. Rejoice and be, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Well, boys, we're right on schedule. You know, that, that's got to be part of what we're willing, willing for. So I'm going to make it more complicated. You set it up with two alternatives. You said boldly stating the stuff that might offend and, and get you called names you don't want to be called, or cowardly retreating into a self-protect. There is a third thing in the New Testament, uh, and it isn't just the empowering of the boldness. It is Paul, which I read in my devotions this morning, 2 Corinthians 8, I strive to say what is, to, to speak what is honorable in the sight of all. Secondly, same thing, 1 Corinthians 10, I try to please all men for their edification that they might be saved. So there's this impulse of not wanting to offend. There's this impulse in the New Testament, not for cowardly reasons, but gospel compassion, salvation, edification reasons, not wanting to offend. Now, so you got, you got cowardice? No. Thanks for pointing no at me, cowardice. John. No cowardice. You've got partying over offending. And you've got... I, Moderate I, position I, in the middle. Yeah. That's, <laughs> no. That's, no, but that's I'm, convenient. I'm totally there. I'm totally... He said that. He said, rejoice and be glad when they slander you. He said that. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, split the difference there and let's do 50% of that. That's totally in the Bible. And anti-cowardness is totally in the Bible. Thanks so for I'm pointing saying it's complicated. Again, <laughs> and I'm saying that pastors uh, are not... There are guys that like to offend. It makes their day without any reference to helping anybody, saving anybody, reconciling anybody. It just feels good to offend. And probably Paul is, might have a little bit of that in him. And so he's, he's preaching to himself, I, I want Jew and Gentile and the church of God to really get what I'm saying and agree with what I'm saying. I don't want to put any unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of the gospel. If they take me wrong, I'm throwing a party, but I'm never going to act out of cowardice. So that, that needed to be said. Those, those yeah. couple of texts plus others where your aim in a situation uh, 
And I'm always trying to understand Doug because he thinks a lot about the way he does. He, 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 he knows when he's offending, and he has it calculated between the people he wants to offend and the people he doesn't. I'm not sure he always gets that right. Like, just the, the right people the will be The scales are broken. I'm pretty sure I don't. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say, okay, how, how does the willingness to offend courageously state the truth and not have a goal to be... I just, I just want to get people riled up. And Paul says, I strive to say what's honorable inside of all, and I try to please all men. Whereas he says in Galatians, if I were trying to please men, I would no longer be a servant of Jesus. So there's, there's things like that in the Bible where there's a, a gospel way to try to please, and there's a demonic way and a cowardly way to try to please. I, I don't want the moment to go by so in such a way that John got to agree with my verse without also me agreeing with his. So, so <laughs> I, I, I do agree with what you're saying. There is a, there's a way of, uh, my father's fond of saying there's a deeper right than being right, right? And, and, and you can't just point at the verse and say, here's the verse, what's your problem? Uh, uh, Jesus, when, when uh, his disciples, Jesus and his disciples were turned away when they were going to Jerusalem, and I think a Samaritan village, and the disciples said, I think the Gospel of Luke, Master, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And Jesus rebuked them and said, you know not what spirit you are of. Okay, you don't, there's a deeper right than being right. So there were passages in the Old Testament where fire had come down from heaven and consumed people who were doing the bad thing. That's, that was in the Bible. And these disciples said, we think this situation calls for that kind of drastic intervention by God. We want fire to come down uh, and consume the Motel 6 that wouldn't put us up in, uh, in this village. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are of. So there's, there's a wrong way of being right, right? And so consequently, if you're praying imprecatory psalms, if you're, you know, oh, how do I deal with this? Or if, if I say, okay, I think this is an occasion for, for a party. I think this is an occasion for rejoicing. Uh, it might not be, right? You might just be deluding yourself. You might be uh, pulling other people's chain for the sake of personal entertainment. And if you are, God despises it. You need to repent in tears and, and just be done with that. So, but there is a, basic, basically you have to calculate, I'm, am I being obedient? Am I, which, which, which passage applies to me in this circumstance? An elder, there's another passage, an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. Not be pugilistic. Not, not be, yeah, not be pugnacious, not a striker. So uh, an elder has to have a good reputation with people who, with people who don't love God. Well, what does that, what does that mean? Um, there was an angle. Yeah, if, he, if he's being persecuted by them according to his godliness. Right. But Peter, going back to Peter, Peter says when people... Uh, engage in all kinds of vituperation against you, behave in such a way that they may be ashamed in the day of visitation. When they're telling lies, when they're making up lies, they know that they are. You know, right. they're, they're, so when the moment comes, there are some people say, no, he's not like that. Other people saying, yes, he is, yes, yes he is. But everything comes together and they will be ashamed because they're caught, they're caught in it. And so there, there has to be a way where you navigate the passages using, uh, using God-given wisdom on, does this apply here? Does this apply here? And if you're going through your whole life and never, and no one ever says a bad word about you, then I think you're, um, Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. 
right? Beware when almonds speak well of you. And I have to have a good reputation with outsiders. Well, there's, there's a tight wire, a high wire act there. Seems like then something there would be the kind of people you surround yourself with to help keep you in check, right? You, would want, you don't want to be sort of the, the lone ranger thundering. You want to have um, a community. Whether it's, if you're a pastor, you want to have el other elders who, when you get out of line in the pulpit or in a conversation, they can call you on it and you trust them. You're on the same page on the, on the substance, and they're, they're going to make a tactical yeah. I'm, I'm in ministry. I'm in ministry with men with backbone who, if I, I'm convinced, if they thought I was being an idiot, they would tell me. Not, and not just tell me. I, I think they would get in my face about it. I think, I think uh, you should be surrounded by vertebrates if you're, if you're going to go um, into this realm at all. You, so, um, so moving, shifting to another issue, but still one that's, I think, on a lot of minds these days. Where, where do you think we are, um, church culture, with all of the, the sexuality stuff? And I'm thinking particularly in this context of, uh, of the homosexuality issue and the way that that's uh, unveiling. I mean, it, it feels, I think for a lot of people, it feels sort of like this whiplash, right? There's um, positions that were held by... Bill Clinton signs the law, you know, t two decades ago, and then now if you hold the position that he held then or you held the position that President Obama held up until two years ago, all of a sudden you're an unbelievable bigot, and I think people just feel this incredible, like, whoa, how did, how did that happen? So when you guys look at that, and, and I know that you probably, f I, know, I know this is true, that you follow um, those sorts of debates and things very differently. I know that you tend to be I think more engaged in those, you're more interested in those just naturally, and you have better things to do. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, but insofar as you are engaged in, in observing those, where do you think it's going? What should we expect? And are there things that the people in this room or on the web ought to be doing now to get ready for that? And so how would you encourage us. And so where do you think things, things stand, and how should we be preparing for whatever you think is coming down the, the pike? Whoever wants to go first. I, I believe the central cultural issue of our day is worship. Who do you worship? Uh, one of the best books I've ever read was uh, by G.K. Beale, You Become Like What You Worship. And he shows this uh, in Psalm 115. It says, the idols have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. Those that make them are like unto them, right? And, and Beale shows in this book that it's not just a one-off passage like that. It's, it's a theme throughout Scripture. You become like what you worship. So we, beholding God's um, face in worship, are being transformed by one degree of glory to another. When Jesus comes, we're going to be, John says, we'll become like him because we will see him as he is. We are, if we adore God, if we worship God, if we are facing God, we are transformed into that likeness. The same is true of idolaters. Okay, and it's inexorably true. You will be conformed to the object of your worship. Well, uh, we don't live in a day of overt Baal worship or overt Molech worship. But our, our age, gripped by scientism and evolution, uh, the, the great myth of evolution, worships blind, impersonal processes. 
and they believe that the universe is just matter in motion, and they believe that anything uh, in the beginning was a, a bit of hydrogen, uh, you know, that exploded. So you've got in the beginning was hydrogen with an enormous amount of potential. So um, hydrogen could turn into sea lions and princess die and tables and cars and you know hydrogen can do a lot. So. Um, so the fundamental faith article is that anything can turn into anything else, right? That's, that's, your, uh, that's your motion. That's your fundamental faith. Our faith is that God spoke and God created not God. And then the first thing God started doing was divvying it, divvying it up, heaven and earth, sea, dry land, uh, uh, male, uh, sun and moon, male, and female. All right, so God says this and this, and so God makes divisions, and he sets them in place. That's our fundamental, that's our story, that's our narrative. So we're happy with men, women. We're, this, is, you know, this is what God did, sun, moon. I'm, I'm very happy with that. Um, but I call the, the, the revolution we're facing, I call pomosexuality, pomosexuality, uh, postmodernism and sexuality. Uh, Postmodernism, basically this fundamental faith is that anything can turn into anything else. If hydrogen can turn into anything in the universe, why can't a man turn into a woman? Why can't you just declare that you want to reinvent yourself? Uh, this is what Michael Jackson did. Michael Jackson's face was a postmodern testimony to the faith that you can just become whatever you want to, want to be. And that was the result of what our culture worships individual choice that can transform absolutely anything into absolutely anything else. And if you deny that, if you get in the way, if you try to thwart it, then you're guilty of a hate crime. You know, and so what, what has to happen, the only way we can answer this, I think, is with worship. And worship that, that worships God with fearless preachers who declare what's going on outside the church, uh, not trying to legislate our way out of it, because what, if you have all these cultural pressures, this fundamental worship pressure under the pressure cooker and full of beans and you've got the lid cinched down tight, uh, just a law passed through the legislature is just turning the thing on the, the, tightening the lid a little bit more. If you don't take the heat away from underneath, you're going to have beans on the ceiling and it's just going to go and there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it by law. Uh, it has to be a gospel presence, it has to be gospel engagement, and it has to be preachers saying it's not lawful for you to live that way. It's not lawful for, for you to, con to organize a society around this false idol. And so that's, I think, the challenge of our day. Can idolatry rise up out of the individual level? Can idols take shape in the public square? Can idols hover over whole societies? Can, can an idol hover over the whole Western world? And if it can, and I'm con absolutely convinced it can, is it my duty as a Christian preacher to challenge it, to, to attack it, to uh, confront it in the name of Jesus? And that's what I think we have to do, and that's why I think worship is, is key. I, I don't think politics is a savior, but I do think politics will be saved. You know, we, we have to get out there and talk about it, but it's only gospel that's going to, it's only gospel that's going to, to do that. Picking up on that, just want to encourage the, the young, younger men and women who are 
toward Christian vocation. And, and at least if I were in your shoes at, a, at, a, at an event like this, given how limited I am, uh, it's not just that I have better things to do, it's how limited I am, can't read very fast, that sort of thing. Um, I'd be feeling, oh shoot, I gotta figure out all these idols, and I gotta figure out all this economics, he said I gotta study economics, and, and on and on. And you, you start to feel like there's no way I can be an effective pastor or minister, missionary, teacher, mom. My really encouraged response to what he just said is, man, do I get that, and I don't know anything but the Bible. In other words, that, that idol he just described about um, if everything comes from hydrogen, anything comes from anything, we don't believe that. I said, duh, you bet I don't believe that, and I don't have to read a single article to know why I don't believe that. So I'm just, I'm just saying that if, if you get a few biblical things absolutely right about the centrality of God, you're going to week in, week out, blast idols everywhere. You're just going to blast them everywhere. And, and I just want to encourage you that you don't have to be an expert in everything in order to un- torpedo all those idols. Second thing, because I'm picking up on a question th- that you ask about, where's it going to go? Where's it all going to wind up? And I think Doug and I would probably both agree here. Um, you don't know in the short run. I don't know where so-called gay marriage is going to take us. I think it's possible it could be the end of our land, be the undoing of us, and it's possible it could be the occasion for a stunning revival, that it could cause um, people who are not believers to wake up to the folly of it all. Who knows what new disease may be coming down the pike? What new utter dysfunction may be coming down the pike in response to this kind of flagrant opposition to God's will that might have exactly not a destructive effect, but an awakening effect. And that's the way I think we should pray. We, we shouldn't pray, uh, you know, pox or damnation on on your whole house, we should pray, oh God, I pray for our president, I pray for our leaders, I pray for a land that you would open the eyes of the blind and cause them to see the folly of this, and, and then churches just need to be radically, radically faithful and be ready to suffer, but not create a bastion mentality, but a long-term hopeful mentality and a deeply prayerful mentality. Herbert Schlossberg says somewhere in his magnificent book, Idols for Destruction, um, he says somewhere that the kingdom of God goes from triumph to triumph, with every one of them cleverly disguised as a disaster. Right? Um, disasters are God's camouflage. Right? Right? So God, what, what was it when Jesus was crucified, the disciples scattered, the sky went dark, the temple veil um, was torn in two, would you, at the end of the day, go home to your wife and say, that was a good day? No, you would say, this was the most horrific, bad, for, you know, it was just terrible. But that was the salvation of the world. That was God's ultimate representation of how he conquers. And when you look at the Protestant Reformation, when you look at the Great Awakening, when you look at the state that England was in, when Whitfield and, uh, and Wesley were first preaching there, 
Arnold Dallimore in his uh, great biography of, of Whitfield uh, talks about how many, you know, I think it was like every seventh house in London was a gin house. You know, drunkenness, uh, debauchery, it was just a vile place. We, we tend to think of anything that's, you know, the, the uh, Waltons or before was all pristine and nice and everything. Um, but it was, it, every Reformation, every great movement has come in periods of incredible darkness. And Paul says in, uh, somewhere that uh, we were pressed down, we were beaten up, and God did this so that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And I would say there's no hope for America apart from a resurrection. There's no hope. But fortunately, resurrection stories are one of God's favorites. Um, so, John, you mentioned something a second ago, um, or you used a phrase, and I know why you did it. You said, when you talked about, I don't know where so-called same-sex marriage will go, and I know one of the things I've heard you say on numerous occasions is that our language matters, the words we use matter. I know, Doug, you've written on this uh, at numerous times, how we speak about things, and that one of the, there's, a, there's a war of words that's always happening when you think about culture war. Um, what do we call things? How do we name things? Um, so, John, I actually want to ask you this question, but I'm going to use Doug to ask it. Doug will regularly use words, we're sticking with the sexuality issue for a minute. Doug will use words like sodomy, sodomite, um, uh, poofter, and other language like that. I don't think I've ever heard you use those. Maybe you have, maybe you use sodomy in, in a sermon or something at some point. You don't use language like that. And I just want to find out. Is, is that deliberate? Do you, do you see what Doug does in, in using that language and say, I don't want to use that language because I think whatever reason, um, or is it more accidental? I mean, in other words, is that is, should, should we be using that kind of language? Um, is that helpful, constructive, or is that alienating in some ways? And then I'll let you kind of talk about why you do. But It's not an accident. Um, um, we piped to you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge to you, and you did not mourn. Wisdom will be justified by our children. So what was Jesus saying? John the Baptist came, uh, and he didn't party, and you, you said he had a demon, and the Son of Man came eating and drinking. You said a glutton and a tax collector. I've always thought one of the things that's going on with John the Baptist and Jesus and the way Jesus uses their diversity to damn the Pharisees, you couldn't be won either way. You couldn't be won by a, a ascetic like John the Baptist from the wilderness with camel skin and grasshopper food, and you couldn't be won by this happy, jolly Jesus who went to all the parties and uh, under, undermined what they were about. You, you couldn't. You wouldn't believe either. And the reason is because it's not, it's not the medium that was the problem. You're blind and wicked, no matter what medium. So um, I think I'm a John the Baptist, and this is Jesus. <laughs> That's a short um, um, now, now, when I uh, came here tonight, that was not what I was expecting to hear. If I don't say something here, I'm going to be King Herod eaten by worms. <laughs> So, um, let, me, no, so let, me, it, let me clarify what, you, what you're saying is you, it's a deliberate decision not to talk the way Doug does so that when people 
reject what Doug says about sodomy and sodomites and reject what you say about homosexuality and so-called same-sex marriage, um, it, it reveals to everyone who's watching that the issue is not what language you choose to use. The issue is there's a fundamental rebellion against God. And so it's good that different Christian leaders use different vocabulary. It's good that, that you have John the Baptists and Jesus's, Elijah's, and Jeremiah's. It's good that you have that diversity because it leaves people without the excuse of, I just didn't like the way he said it. Is that more or less what you were um, getting at? I, that illustration I just gave is just so confused because he has so many traits of jollity about him and so many traits of John the Baptist in your faceness about him, it, it, it doesn't work. Um, so you can forget everything I just said, except, except, Doug, the, prin except the principle that I think there are types of people that God calls into his service and their differences are valuable. I think that was Jesus' point. Um, and we, we do have differences. One of the differences you're pointing out is that I, I haven't, to this point, chosen to use that kind of language. My, my take on why I haven't is because I have faces in front of me of people who are um, tra attracted by same sex, whom I love, I care about, and I want to help them. And um, I would like to uh, win them, and I, I think I'm not at all saying Doug doesn't. I think that's what I meant when I said Doug parses up the people he means to offend and the people he, he doesn't. And my sense is that my calling right now is to hate sin and hate calling um, two men shacking up marriage. I hate that. But when I talk to a man or a woman who are attracted by the other sex, I really want to talk to them hopefully. I want to say there is hope in the gospel. I want to help, I want to help them see this is, not, this is not as black and white as you think it is. We human beings are on continuums from the most radical, transgender, queer, in-your-face militant over here to, to a very confused and ambiguous 15-year-old or... 13-year-old kid over here who's just wobbling back and forth, and he could go either way. I want, I want them to feel that on that continuum, we're all there somewhere, and I know there's hope, and I don't want your identity to be... That's, that's the kind of language. I'm, I'm, I'm aching to, to, rescue, to rescue lots of people who could be driven that way by, by being called a sodomite, or could be drawn in by a, a language that says, okay, he, he kind of gets the complexity of what I felt for the last five years of my life from the age 12 to 17. He kind of gets that, and he says, he says, I don't have to go that way. I, don't, I can have a life. I can, I can have a, a life either of marriage, miraculously, or I can have a chastity. I can have meaning. I don't have to have my identity. That constellation of talk seems to me from me right now in my uh, available access to people, the most uh, helpful way forward. The more people being helped. And, and the, the, you know, when I preached on, you know, the, before the vote we took here, I preached pretty strong. There is no such thing as so-called gay marriage. I will never even use the term. I think we give away the shape when, we, when they give the term. It doesn't exist in the universe. Call it what you will. It doesn't exist. So I'm, 
I'm ready to talk like that. So I want to get you in, but I want to, I want to set it up this way because um, there's a categories that you've used. And so if you weren't going to go there, I want you to go here that you've, I've heard you describe before that were incredibly helpful to me on talking about the spectrum he just described. I've heard you use this, these two phrases, um, apostles from the world and refugees from the world. Right. And that you make a big distinction between what you call apostles and what you call refugees. So I'm wondering, as you answer why you use the language you do, if you could just unpack those categories as well, because I found them incredibly helpful in trying to navigate what John just described. As, as I address that, I, I want to say that John's approach to this issue is one that I respect highly. Right? So this is not me trying to distance myself from a particular approach, because I regard it as a matter of God chooses different vessels at different places at different times to do different things. When God is orchestrating his symphony, not all the instruments sound the same. It's a body life kind of thing. He picks one minister who's able to do this, another minister who can't, uh, he, he can't do what this other guy can, can do. Um, if I tried to use my hands while preaching the, the way John does, I'd punch myself in the eye. <laughs> Nancy says, it does happen. <laughs> Nancy would say, Doug, you're going to put your eye out. Don't, don't. Uh, or we were just talking in the car the other day about, um, we, we, we got to talking about uh, getting choked up in a, in a message, in a, in a sermon. And I just hate that. You know, I, I get choked up more often in sermon prep than I do in the sermon. And I see these places, I think, oh, you know, uh-oh, you know, I need to get, th- I need to get through that without... Um, going over, right? And I, th- that's, my, that's my inclination. That's what I want to do. And John was urging me to, no, lighten up. You know, d- don't... No, don't lighten up. No, d- Tear up. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, when it, and it does happen, but I think, you know, darn it. <laughs> you know, I don't want to, because I don't ever want to be manipulative. I'm suspicious. My personality is suspicious of different things than John's is. Right? John is suspicious in a certain way. I'm suspicious in another way. And I think that that's just a function of, of personality. All right, so and and that, that's God's wisdom in making you different to be able to do different things. Right, because, and I know going into it that there will be people who could not hear what I'm saying that can hear that same word, that same position, that same doctrinal fidelity to what God means by marriage. And I agree that there's no such thing as I call it same-sex mirage. Right? It's not a, it's, it's not a same-sex marriage. It, it doesn't exist. We have the, we're no difference of opinion between us at all, uh, and I believe that there are some people who can hear something from me that they couldn't hear from John, and there are people who can hear from John what they couldn't hear from me, and that's why God has His ministers go out throughout, you know, preaching the gospel through the whole world. Now. The, the thing I'm, um, I, and with John, I minister to people who are tempted by same-sex attraction. I, uh, I, I'm a pastor. I'm a counseling pastor. I, I, there are people who are broken. Uh, in, you know, I'm counseling people who are broken by adultery or uh, infidelity in marriage. But there's a difference. This is your question about apostles and refugees. There's the adulteress in Proverbs who wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. So I am not attacking people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I never have. I wouldn't dream of it. I want to weep with them in in counseling. I want to embrace them. I want to work with them. But if you show up in my church in a gay pride way, 
I'm going to attack you with everything I've got, right? And my, when I use words like sodomy, sodomite, um, poofter, what, you know, uh, someone who's a little light in the loafers, whatever it is that I'm saying or doing, I am talking about people who are proud of their sin. That, that's what I'm dealing with. When I'm dealing with Christians who, who, who agree with me that this is not the will of God, this is not right, what do I do? I'm struggling with this. I don't want to be cold uh, or uh, sarcastic or anything like that with them uh, at all. And I think that's just part of a function of um, wh where I'm called to defend the city wall. So if someone comes, I don't, I don't mind, I don't mind people showing up in our in our church that are clearly running from the refugees from the world. They can be, they can have as blue a hair as they want. They can be tatted up as they want. I want them to come. I don't, I don't want to say no. You can't come in because you might track something in. Um, I want. I want our church to be a place where refugees stream. But if you show up as an apostle saying, this is the way, this is what the cool kids are doing, this is, what, this is the way, you, this is the homosexual entry point, no. So then it seems like the challenge, this is, um, I think that's helpful. So, so on your spectrum, you had, you know, from here to the confused 17-year-old, you know, the activist, and so there's your apostle, and then there's your refugee. Um, it seems like one of the big challenges on this issue is the fact that there are many refugees for whatever reasons, background history, successful uh, education in, some, in our public schools, who have come to identify themselves in some fundamental way with this guy that you're trying to shoot at. So you're, you're, you're at war with that person yeah. over here, and because this group has been taught to feel a kind of camaraderie and fellowship because there's the same desires at work, one being acted out, practiced, and celebrated, and one being resisted painfully. Um, there's the, the problem of collateral damage where when you say, Doug, um, sodomy is a wicked sin, and, or you make a joke about life in the light in the loafers, there's folks in this congregation who feel, who feel like um, rightly or wrongly, you're talking about me, and you're saying, I'm not talking about you. Yeah. So help me, how, how do you, what are you going to do? How, so how, is, it, is, the collateral, is the collateral damage worth it right. in that situation? Yeah, it, and what you have to do is long experience, figuring out how much, what's the collateral damage. When you're preaching to hundreds of people, if you're speaking to thousands of people, and 20 people are going to totally take it wrong and walk out in a huff, and... 500 people are going to be totally edified and blessed and be talking about it for three days. How do you do a cost-benefit analysis that way? It's, you, just have to, it's, you just have to trust God and ask Jesus to protect you. And James says not many should be teachers. I think because of the tongue is a, rest, is a fire and a teacher is someone who's got a stand of trees, the woods, the, the forest is right there, and his tongue is a tongue of fire. And if you burn the whole thing down, you're the, you're the problem. It's the same problem, for example, that you have in Colossians and Corinthians, where Paul says, uh, I'm willing to forgo eating meat. I'm willing to become a vegetarian. I'm willing to drink no wine forever to avoid stumbling my brother. I don't want to stumble my brother in any, any sin at all. I, so I'm willing to just do radical things and bend over backwards for, my, for the weaker brother. And then in Colossians, he says, why do you submit to decrees saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? What do you, you, you don't bend an inch for the legalist. 
right? You don't bend an inch for the legalist. You go, you go completely all in for the sake of the weaker brother. The problem is many of the weaker brothers who show up at your church have been taught by the legalists and advance legalistic arguments. But the, the thing that's driving them is the weakness, not the legalism. Right? So how do you tell the difference? Well, it's not a new pastoral problem. It's as old as dirt. So I've got to say, this guy, I'm supposed to accommodate this guy. I'm supposed to not accommodate this guy at all. You know, so you have Timothy being circumcised because everybody knew his father was a Greek. And Paul willing to go to the wall to avoid having Titus, you know, circumcised. You know, we, we did not give for a moment when this was the issue. And we're as, accommod- as accommodating as it co- can possibly be when that's not the issue. Well, then, I'm sure in the Judaizing controversies, was there ever, ever anybody that was sort of stuck in the gray zone in the middle that was all muddled? Well, this is not, this is not new. So basically what I think you have to do is have three-dimensional, three 3D personal engagement. Your people in your church have to know you love them. Uh, there's one, uh, one parishioner who's thanked me for, you know, um, for how I've dealt with him and his temptations. And he knows all about my public clashes on these things. And he's so appreciative for, of, of how you know, I've responded. So I th- you just have to trial and error. And the, other, the other piece of that seems like would be um, not only have the refugees been taught by the apostles and they're streaming out now and coming to your church and confused by what you're saying, are you talking about me? But the apostles are very adept at put it, presenting themselves as refugees. In other words, there's a way of, of, right, this is what legalists love to do, is present themselves with, and weaker brother guys because they know you're sympathetic and they know you'll bend over backward. Um, so there seems like there's another challenge there in sort of the, um, that movement as well, the, the flopper, the person who, who uses the, the human shield and, and is, is an apostle but is hiding behind all of the hurt feelings that you're going to cause among refugees. Um, and so there's a kind of hot hostage taking, it, it seems like it, it gets into yeah. the mix as well. That's the problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Two, two <clears throat> implications of all that. One, um, be transformed in the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is the go- will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Because how, how are you going to know whether to speak in a moment a really tough let the chips fall where they will word or a very gentle, winsome, warm, uh, pleasing word. And I don't think there's any rule book for knowing that moment. It's a, it's a transformed mind. It's a spiritual wisdom. And so plead with the Lord to saturate you with the Bible. I'm, when you read the whole Bible, there's a lot of tough words, a lot of them, and you will become acclimated to them so that they fit. And then there's a lot of tenderness, a lot of patience and kindness and meekness. And that will start to feel like your native uh, soul. And when the, when the moment's right, if you're walking in the Spirit, you'll, you'll discern. Second implication, be very slow to judge the voice on Twitter or the voice on a blog or the voice right here. Because what you've just heard is that a person saying, you may not have her. She belongs to Philip. John the Baptist getting his head chopped off with his, with his word against Herod. If you, you might say, John the Baptist doesn't have a compassionate bone in his body. You, you'd be wrong. 
So be very slow to, to judge the heart because of a particular tone. Or you might hear a very tender, soft word, and you say, that person doesn't have any backbone at all. He's always trying to accommodate people. So I'm just pleading with you, uh, wait a few days before you write your answer block. Um, to, to any particular person who has sounded like you wouldn't think should be sounded in that moment. Judged by the video, not the, sna not the snapshot. So um, I want to finish. I've got, got enough time maybe for two questions. Um, my first is, and we, we've dealt with this in some way. One of the questions I had was about w whether, you know, us having conversation, we, we, can, we can talk about where things are headed and are Christians going to be persecuted in America. And there's a certain type of person who says, stop whining. Churches got blown up in the last week, and that's nothing compared to losing your business in Oregon because you wouldn't bake the cake. Um, but we seem to have gotten at the fact that Jesus has categories for all kinds of persecution. It's not just they're killing you, and that's the only kind of persecution that counts. There's the slander. There's the harassment. There's all sorts of things like that. So I think we've got that. My question is, if we're heading um, in the short run, potentially, right, we're praying for revival, that, this is, that, that we've reached a point where God's going to light it up and we're going to see the third great awakening. If we don't, and we're entering in an, an era in which there's increasing hostility uh, and, and legal action, like what's happened in, say, New Mexico with the wedding photographer who's sued because she wouldn't take photos at the gay wedding or, um, or in Oregon, and that thing's going to happen more, and there's going to be more subtle ways and, and things like that. Um, how, what would you say? How would the, how's the church supposed to get ready for that? Like, what if people are losing their businesses, losing their jobs? Um, it seems like we want to be the place where we have to have, it, there ought to be structures and thought put into preparation for that. And so would you just say anything that maybe even, it, obviously can't get detailed, but at the principial level, like what would you say to, to churches, whether pastors or just laymen, to say, if this is what's coming, you ought to get ready, and here's a couple of ideas. Do you have any thoughts on how to get ready for people losing their jobs because of these sort of things? Our, our deacons fund currently has a couple of categories. Um, one of them is just straight need, you know, when people are just hurting for whatever reason. We also have a, a category Christian education fund. It's a subset of our deacon education fund. And if it continues to go in this direction, one of the things I would argue for is have a third category of the church, the saints in the church, taking care of anybody who loses their livelihood because of their faithfulness to Christ. Uh, so I, I think that that's something that the saints should gather around. I think that's modeled for us in the early part of Acts. And I, I think we uh, basically, if you attack one part of the body, it should be an attack on the entire body. The body is a covenanted, covenantal community. And if the baker in your congregation has to close up shop, everybody ought not to say, well, that's too bad, and let's add him to the prayer list. It has to be way more than just the prayer list. Yeah, here we are again at texts that go in seemingly opposite directions. Let him who does not work not eat, and there should be no need among you. So we're making distinctions between causes of, of uh, need. If you need because you're lazy and you will not work because you can't find the exact job you want, you need some rebuke. But if you've been faithful, and, and we have models of it in the widow group in 
First Timothy, where if you're 60 years old and you're a real widow, you're coming on the church. We, we, the, the church is the welfare. We, we should not assume government welfare. It exists. We benefit from it. We give thanks. If it went away, we shouldn't say, hey, wait a minute. The, the church should care for its covenant people. So that, I think the implication is, is huge there that that's the case. However, third comment, I hated what happened at Y2K. I mocked it from the pulpit. I scolded our people. Generators and water and food and what? You know, midnight tonight, the world is going to end. And it, it just had the flavor of fear about it. On the upside, we have a lot of extra peanut butter. <laughs> you have a lot of extra peanut butter. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. I don't think you do. So there's a mentality of, I mean, get ready. That's, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. God is going to show up and take care of his people. But what, what Jason, as the pastor of this church, should do week in and week out is so preach that a, a a deep, sacrificial, loving, robust, risk-taking mindset of generosity and care exists so that when the flashpoint is there and any particular kind of need happens, that makes sense. Let's get on it. That makes sense because all the principial biblical foundation has been laid, which applies in a hundred ways, not just one or two ways. And that's the big danger with trying to prepare for any particular thing that's coming down. You kind of orient yourself on that thing. Well, I guess a generator and peanut butter would be, be the solution here. And, and really, you need solutions way deeper than that because that may not be what's coming down at all. This comes a lion from this side. You thought a tank from that side, and what you have over here is no protection for the lion over here. But the deep principles laid in the, in the word that make us the kind of people we ought to be will, will set us up to respond whichever way it goes. That's helpful. That, that was actually where I was going to go next, so I, I don't think we need to go there. John, would you uh, pray for us here as we, as we close? That would be happy to. Oh, Father in heaven, if there is anything that we have said amiss, both being unbiblical, unbalanced, unhelpful, mercifully cancel it out. Don't let it get any traction, go anywhere, hurt anybody. And if we have said things to the degree that we've said things that are faithful to your word and are needed in the moment, Give them traction, breathe on them, and let it, right now in this group, gathered right here, bear fruit. Everybody needs to hear and act on this in different ways, and I pray that you would give strength and help and wisdom, strengthen this church and other churches represented here, oh God, and may pastors have wisdom and moms who are raising kids with these issues have wisdom, I pray, and so beyond the ripple effect of what we just did to protect people and to bless people with this time together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Would you